Welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said to yourself, I thought I'd be healthier, in better shape, feel better both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and be further along in my life? If so, come on this journey with my dad as he explores all things health and wellness from a holistic, medical perspective, even as a classically trained physician. He'll share integrative strategies to optimize health and inspire you to join the modern medicine movement. Welcome, 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 everyone, to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast. Dr. Thomas Hemingway here and sending you all a big aloha. Happy November, everybody. Jeez, the second week of November already. And just wanted to give you guys, the listeners, each and every one of you, a giant shout out and a big Hawaiian mahalo or thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your feedback. I'm just so humbled and so grateful for each and every one of you taking time out of your busy lives to take a listen and to share. Oh my gosh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm always so humbled by you guys and so grateful. I'm so pumped. I can't wait to share with you the review of the week. Oh, this just was just so touching, so, so appreciate it. This was from Jasmine314, just came in on Friday, so just a couple of days ago. It says, Five stars, absolutely loving Dr. Hemingway's enthusiasm and passion for optimizing our health and improving the quality of our lives. He is truly committed to helping all of us understand how making simple habits a priority can have very real health benefits. Dr. Hemingway is extremely intelligent and yet down to earth with a true desire to help the masses. He is so gifted in sharing the fascinating ways that our bodies, minds, spirits are all connected. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't say it enough. Mahalo! Oh my gosh, Jasmine314, that is so beautiful. Oh, just humbling, just really, really grateful for that review. So appreciate you. So appreciate each and every one of you. It's just such a pleasure to share these things. Just really, really a pleasure. So thank you and keep it coming. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Also hit the write a review button. It's just at the end. If you go to the show, you scroll down like an Apple podcast, for example, there's the five stars. You click on the one farthest to the right. And just below that to the left is that little square with a little kind of pencil thing pointing out towards the right. You just click on that thing and then you just write a little review. Tell me what you're loving, tell me, you know, just what your experience has been and just give me a little, just a little pick me up. Sometimes it's rough, you know, I just crank these things out and it takes a lot of hours of research and I just am so grateful to hear from you guys. So keep it coming, really grateful, so appreciate that. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast and join my free Facebook group. It's free. It's free, and it's called the Modern Medicine Movement Health and Wellness Facebook group, and I'm going to do weekly lives in there. I'll do posts. You'll never you know, miss the releases of each and every one of my upcoming podcasts. You'll be the first to know. You can also ask me questions. You can 
you know, just just reply to, you know, the different posts I make. And I usually try to get back to you guys with their questions. You can also do the old school thing. You can email me. I'm a <laughs> creature of habit. I still do email. So you can shoot me out an email at modern medicine movement podcast at gmail.com. You can look me up on the web, modern medicine movement podcast um, at uh, Facebook or the Aloha Surf Doc at Instagram or Modern Medicine Movement uh, at Instagram, as well as my website, modernmedicinemovement.com. So thank you. Thank you for sharing once again. Super pumped, guys. The podcast topic today. Oh, my gosh. It's just something millions and millions and millions of us have done, and maybe we've done it a couple of times throughout our lives, and Maybe we haven't been so successful doing it. And guess what? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. The overwhelming majority of us who try this, do this, repeat doing this, what have you, aren't all that stinking successful, at least for more than a few months. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's going on with that and how can we be successful? How can we do it? Right? Well... What is the topic? Well, many of us will probably have this on our minds coming up in another month, right? Month and a half when January rolls around and we might have put on a couple of extra pounds during the holiday season or maybe, you know, like what I've heard, you know, people say, you know, during this pandemic time of COVID-19, they've put on the proverbial COVID-20 or an extra 20 pounds. So maybe this is right ready to roll for us right now. We can talk about it. It's a big subject that Literally millions of us attempt every single year, and it's the diet. That's right, the diet, dieting. What the heck? <laughs> dieting. <laughs> anyway, the research shows at least 45 million people in the U.S. at least are going on diets each year. In fact, some sources say up to one in three people are on some diet at any given time. Like, holy moly, that's millions and millions of people. All right, let's see it. Show of hands, guys. Have you ever been on a diet? Raise your hand. Come on, up high, up high. Want to see it? Want to feel it? I feel you. Like probably almost every one of us have gone on a diet at some point in our lives, right? Okay, go back to that time. Did that diet work? Not just for a month or two or three or maybe six but is that diet still working for you? Is it still operational? Are you still able to hold that weight at bay? Right? Drop the pounds and keep them off. Like, were you successful? And it's okay. If the answer is no, guess what? You're like the overwhelming majority of all of us. Almost all of us who have been on diets at some point actually gain the weight back. Almost all of us within one year and certainly nearly all of us within two years. That's, that's what the studies show. And actually, there was a real cool study just this past April, right at the outset of the pandemic. This study was reported in the British Medical Journal, April 1st, 2020. So solid, solid journal. And what's interesting is that this was a super robust study. It had, I think, 121 
studies it looked at. So this is called a meta-analysis. It's basically a study that groups lots of other high-quality studies together so that you can up the N, right, or the number of people. So they had nearly 22,000 people who had followed one of the 14 major diets, okay? This included things like the Atkins diet, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet. Okay, lots of popular diets, over 14 of them for an average of six months. And so they divided them into a couple of general categories, either the low-carb or the low-fat or the moderate macronutrient diet. And basically, they measured both loss of of weight as well as other cardiovascular measures like blood pressure, cholesterol, while on these diets, okay? So at six months, they had a you know decent success rate. People lost on average up to about 10 pounds on the low-carb or the low-fat diets. They had about a 10-pound weight loss at six months. But the sad thing is with almost everyone, most of that lost weight was regained within... Yeah, you're about to hear it. One calendar year. One year! Like, holy moly! One stinking year, and it was already back. Also, the blood pressure cholesterol results, you know, they they were good at about the six-month point where people lost, on average, about 10 pounds. But generally, just as the weight came back after a year, these things also went back. The blood pressure that had diminished went back up to the pre study numbers, cholesterol didn't hold on very much either. I mean, the only one actually that showed ongoing persistent reductions in cholesterol, the bad cholesterol while on the diet that persisted was the Mediterranean diet. And that's that's kind of an interesting one. It's, it's actually one that's been studied probably better than almost any other diet. And it's kind of one that, you know, if I ever did go on a diet, I I don't really you know, believe that diets are the best way to do things. And that's kind of what I've always believed because I've just seen too many people come and go on different diets and and they've replicated what we now have on paper in the British Medical Journal, April 2020, that for the most part, diets don't work for the long term. It just They just don't work. And you can all think about your own personal experiences and think about why it may not have worked for you. But Take a breath. It's okay. It just means you're normal. Like diets don't really work for anybody long term, really. (laughs) We can talk about why there's lots of reasons why this may be the case. There's another uh, similar study that was published in the medical clinics of North America. Uh, This was two years ago in 2018. And they looked at all, I think, 29 different uh, weight loss studies. And they showed that Overwhelming majority of folks that lost weight, they had regained it within two years. And then by five years, almost all of them had regained the weight. And so this, you know, study, in addition to the one reported in the BMJ, just basically shows that 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 weight that was lost, you know, almost universally comes back, comes back. And we know literally hundreds of millions of people have tried diets through the years, all kinds of different ones, and maybe they've lost weight. But unfortunately, most of this has been temporary. 
right? In fact, there was a really super interesting study out of UCLA that showed basically that one consistent thing that people who tried, for example, calorie restriction type diets, and this could apply to almost any type of diet because usually there's some element of counting calories in addition to, you know, selection of certain foods and things. And so almost all diets would, would basically be applicable here. But the researchers at UCLA basically looked at any dieting group that used any version of calorie restriction. And what they found is that almost none of them were able to keep their weight off. In fact, this, this was pretty funny. It said, the studies indicated that dieting was actually, especially the caloric restriction type of dieting, is actually consistently a predictor of not only gaining that weight back, but a future weight gain. Like, holy moly, a predictor of weight gain is going on a diet. Like, has anybody ever experienced that? Who, who you know, no, there's no shame here. There's no judgment. Who's been on a diet, lost some weight, and then maybe a year or two years later, you were already back up to your starting weight, and maybe even a couple of pounds over that. Who's done that? Like I said, if you're like most people, almost everyone who's dieted has done that before. Like, that's crazy, right? That's just crazy, crazy. I mean, this is not something that, you know, you would sort of predict de novo that anybody who goes on a diet will ultimately gain weight. And not only gain weight, but maybe even gain a little bit extra weight. Like, this is crazy. This is crazy. And so if this person happened to be you, you're normal. It's okay. You're normal. Don't be ashamed. You're normal. These studies are showing that. And so what I'm going to talk about today is <laughs> something other than a traditional diet, how we can actually make real changes that will withstand the test of time right? We're going to talk about that. And it's not going to be specific to any one type, you know, of diet, you know, the DASH diet, the Atkins diet, the paleo diet, the Mediterranean diet. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, stick to any specific dietary plan because you know what? Everybody can have potentially different results. You got to go with what suits you best, right? People ask me, they go, Hey, what's the best exercise for me? <laughs> and no joke, what I tell them, it's the exercise that you will do, right? If you absolutely hate whatever exercise you start up and doing, you might be able to do it for one week, maybe two, and if you're like super highly motivated, maybe a whole month, right? Who's bought a pass to the you know, gym and they started to take a certain class or they started to do a certain activity, but they really, really hated it, you know, they felt like, oh gosh, I should just get on that treadmill because I know it's good for me, but I absolutely hate running. Like who can do that for more than a month or two, right? It's hard. The best exercise you'll do, or for you, I should say, right? The best for you is the one that you'll do, which is the same thing with respect to dieting. Because if you choose a diet and you absolutely hate the food, like how long are you going to do that? <laughs> Probably not that long. So we're not going to be talking about any specific diet per se, but we're going to be talking about some principles of how we can make solid health and lifestyle changes that will be good for the duration, 
for our lives that will help us throughout our lives. And before I get into that, <coughs> we'll talk about maybe a little bit of why dieting doesn't really work, you know? And how many reasons are there? Well, I could go back to the the old uh, TNTC, right? Or TNT from our old science courses of high school. Too numerous to count. Like that's how many reasons there are for why diets don't work. My favorite is the fact that the word diet has within it the root word die, right? D-I-E, die. I mean, nobody wants to die. So why would you go on a diet, right? I mean, look at that nomenclature. It's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of funny, right? It's just unnatural to force yourself to be on some weird restrictive diet, eating things that you don't even like. I mean, how how many people that have never had like kale before are all of a sudden going to eat like three salads a day comprised of primarily kale? Like who's going to do that, right? I mean, if you hate the food, I mean, the likelihood of you staying on that long term is just super slim, right? We talked about it. <laughs> So, you know, what, what we've talked about is, is most programs, these different diets, quote unquote, just don't work for the long term. I mean, up to 95% of people studies show who lost weight will regain it. Some in one year, some in two, and almost all of them by five years. Like that is what happens. So, so really this dieting kind of thing is really by definition a temporary food plan and it just doesn't work in the long run and that's not what we want because who wants to deprive ourselves of certain things or be super restrictive to where it's just not even fun like like who wants that right what i'll show you is that you can lead a healthy life which will include a healthy diet which will not even feel like dieting because it'll have real food, like tasty, tasty food. Like, you know, last week I podcasted on, you know, some of the most famous centenarians in the world and, and they come from places, guess what, that have phenomenal food, right? Who has been to Italy? Oh my gosh, I've been there twice in my life and I would go there again in a heartbeat, like just to eat the food. The food is phenomenal. It tastes so good. And yet these are the people eating this diet that go on to live 80, 90, and 100 years. And they don't quote-unquote diet at all. They just eat real, whole, healthy, non-processed food. Like it's pretty dang simple, right? So another reason diets don't work is because is many of these are just like fads, you know, and they come and go. And a lot of them actually lack a lot of essential nutrients. Like you know, I think kale is awesome, but if you eat three meals of kale a day, like you're going to be missing out on a few things, right? I mean, kale doesn't have everything in the world that you need. I mean, it's got some good stuff. It even has some iron in there. If you listen to my iron and anemia podcast, it does have some iron, not as much as a good old fashioned tri-tip steak, but there is some in there. And I love kale, actually. I just don't eat it three meals a day. But, but this whole issue of different dietary patterns, many of them are fad types, you know, they're just unnatural. And a lot of them actually don't have all the nutrients that you need. And so often you'll have this, you know, quick drop in pounds and then you'll go back up, you know, this whole sort of yo-yo phenomenon, right? And, and what I alluded to before is not only this, but many of these fad diets are super restrictive of certain things. And so it's just, it kind of takes the fun out of eating, you know? I mean, 
you don't want to be the proverbial, you know, sacrificial lamb, if you will, and just deprive yourself of, of eating anything that's good, that tastes good. Like, that's no way to live, right? That's no way to live. Also, you know, just this compulsory, you know, diet that just you do and you force yourself, you force yourself and you just do dieting over and over again. Like, that's just not even fun. And, and a lot of times this can even lead to future eating disorders because it connotes or it basically will make you oftentimes have, you know, a, an unhealthy, unnatural relationship with food. And that's not good. Like, food is not the enemy. Like, ask anybody who knows me, I love to eat. I love it. I love tasty food. And I've, you know, I'm so grateful. I've, I've never been overweight in my life, but I try to avoid certain types of food. You know, a lot of the highly processed stuff I just stay away from, except maybe a special occasion. You know, I'll have, a, have something, but I don't do that kind of thing very regularly. And it's, it's worked out, it's panned out. And so we don't want to develop unhealthy relationships with food, right? It's just, it's just in the end going to come back to bite us. I mean, even there's even some ties with our early childhood experiences that will unfortunately start a bad sort of downward spiral that will lead us into our adult life because of the relationship with food that we might have had. It could have just been, you know, the way that we were fed. It could have been emotional trauma. It could be physical trauma. A lot of the different traumatic experiences that kids can experience can lead later to unhealthy lifestyle choices, including unhealthy diets and overeating and eating disorders. And so we don't want to propagate this. We don't want to spread this notion. We want to have a healthy relationship with food because food is a part of life and I would just purport that it's one of the most enjoyable things we can do and we could learn a lesson or two from our friends in Sardinia or the Isles off of Greece who have amazing diets and yet they live to be a hundred years old many of them so we don't have to be self-deprecating. We don't have to deprive ourselves of the good things of life by being on a starvation diet or, or a deprivation diet. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. So we, we can do this. <laughs> I just want to let you know that it is possible. It is possible to enjoy food and to have a healthy weight. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive. They're just not. They're just not. And some other things to think think about is is just the notion of weighing less than, say, a certain other person. That doesn't mean that the person who is thin is more healthy. Like, that doesn't always work out that way. I've seen a lot of thin people, you know, in my work as a physician, that are really not healthy at all. In fact, many, many, many very uncontrolled diabetics that I've seen are super thin. So just a certain weight in and of itself doesn't connote health, right? So this unhealthy relationship, not only with food, but with the scale may not be ideal, right? We can be healthy and not be rail thin. Like it's possible. It's possible. Remember Dr. Bickman's podcast. We have 
sort of the healthy way to add fat, you know, and the unhealthy way, right? This whole notion um, of the different type of fat, you know, depositing ways, you know, you have the cell that gets really big, the hypertrophic fat cell versus the hyperplasia or more fat cells. And when you got these big, you know, giant fat cells that don't work properly, that's the unhealthy kind of fat. That's the type that leads to insulin resistance. You can learn all about that in Dr. Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick. So I'm not going to perseverate here, but it's not just a number on a scale, right? It's function and metabolic health and not having insulin resistance. And that doesn't mean you have to be rail thin, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. So we need to reestablish what true health is. True health is the is not only what I learned way back when in medical school, the absence of disease, but it's our bodies working in the manner that they were designed, having a healthy metabolism. And this doesn't mean that you have to be rail thin. It absolutely does not mean that. You can be metabolically healthy and be a full person as well. Okay, but we need to focus on how we can get healthy from the ground up and have our metabolisms work efficiently. So we're going to talk about this and and talk about, you know, how we can overcome these, you know, sort of cyclical diet, gain weight, diet, gain weight, you know, the yo-yo effect that that I talked about a a little bit because it's ideal, right, to not be going up and down and up and down. You would like to have more of a consistent, healthy weight. You want to be consistently healthy all the time and not just fit into your genes once for like a reunion or something and then a few months later, you know, go back to how you were. That's not what we want, right? We want to be healthy and be functional and be able to keep that ideal body weight, whatever it is for us, and ideal metabolic health so we can have the energy that we so desire. And let me tell you guys, it's not just about food. It has a lot to do with food, but it doesn't mean any strict dietary plan of all those that you've heard of, those 20 common ones that the study looked at, you know, the keto, the paleo, the DASH, the Jenny Craig plan, the Weight Watchers plan. None of these. You, you don't have to follow any of those things. You just have to go to my simple method, right? The very simple. I keep it super simple. I just call it the whole real, natural food method. That's it. Natural, whole, real foods. You can do it simply. It doesn't have to be complicated. But beyond food choices, beyond food choices, there are a couple other factors we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about getting adequate sleep. Because you may or may not know this, but if you don't get adequate sleep, and most studies will say, you know, seven hours sort of minimum, you know, seven, eight hours is great. Some people require nine hours. But if we can get at least seven hours of sleep a night, then our metabolisms will function much better. And this has been shown in the data. It's very interesting. Um, a study came out a few years back that looked at uh, people essentially on the same exact diet, same amount of calories, same stuff that they were eating. And it was a real controlled study where they looked at um, – weight loss, and basically those people that did not sleep the 
requisite minimum of seven hours per night, not only were they not able to lose the same amount of weight that those that slept seven or eight hours a night, but when they lost weight, they didn't preferentially lose you know, the fat that most people wanted to lose, but yet they were losing a higher percentage of muscle mass than the people who slept the full seven, eight-hour nights. And this is not a commonly known thing. I mean, the importance of regular, consistent, healthy sleep, you know, seven hours per night minimum is what I would propose would be a good number to shoot for. It's not just good, you know, for your mind, your body, your soul, you know, to refresh, you know, but it's also good for your metabolism so that you can maintain the proper weight. And I see this a lot, you know, I work night shifts at the hospital, pretty common. And, and I've seen that on average, you know, a lot of the folks that work the night shift struggle more with weight because they really have a challenge in getting the right amount of sleep. It's just super difficult for them super difficult for them to get adequate sleep when they're up all night, you know, just flip-flopping back and forth. It can be super challenging. And so I would propose to you that sleep is super important also for maintaining a healthy weight. And this is not often talked about, but it is a pillar and it is super, super important. Another thing that's super important that we need to focus on, and this will help us throughout our lives to maintain a healthy weight in addition to seven hours minimum of sleep a night, healthy, restful sleep, is having an adequate water intake, right? I talked a whole podcast about water and salt balance, and I would say a minimum of 70, 80 ounces of water per day. Minimum. Did you know that water actually has a thermogenic effect? I was looking at a couple of studies about this just to you know, be able to share with you the details. And, and one of them looked at um, a couple groups of people that wanted to lose weight. And the one group, they gave them, I think it was like seven ounces of water prior to every meal. So it was like an additional, you know, 21 or so ounces of water. And their metabolism worked so much better. And they were able to, I think it was at least a 30% improvement with their metabolic rate and weight loss efficiency. And this was just a simple, simple thing they did. They drank seven ounces of water with every meal. And I would purport that not only does, as these two studies, and I'll put them in the show notes, uh, reveal that water has kind of a thermogenic effect, but I've mentioned this before. If you drink a full glass of water, you know, at least eight ounces, maybe even 10 or 12 ounces. This This is what I do every time I go out to eat. I drink a bunch of water before my meal, and then I don't really want to eat a giant meal. You know, it has a satiating effect because the stomach receptors are, you know, excited because they stretch and they tell the brain, hey, you know, you're already kind of filling up. You don't need to eat so much. But in addition to that, there's also a thermogenic effect of water. Like water is awesome, super healthy. So we need to drink our water, at least 80 ounces of water per day. At least, I would say, you know, my typical rule on average, depends on where you live. I mean, I live in Hawaii, so I'm sweating like crazy. I drink at least one ounce for every pound of weight I am. So I'm about 150 pounds. I drink about 150 uh, ounces of water per day because I'm sweating like crazy. But I would say at least try to drink 80 ounces of water per day, like average adult, okay? So I talked about sleep a little bit. I talked about water intake. 
regular exercise is a, is a third super important pillar in maintaining a healthy weight throughout your life. And I would recommend on average, you know, approximately 120 to 150 minutes per week. So you can break it down, you know, six for six. My wife likes to use that sort of tagline, 20 to 30 minutes a day, six days a week. You know, I would say if you did that, 25 minutes, six days a week, you're right there. You're at 150 minutes. Or if you want to do 30 minutes a day, five days a week, you're at 150 minutes. And this can be something so simple as walking. Like if you go for a short walk after every meal or after two out of the three meals, 15 minutes after lunch, 15 minutes after dinner, you've got it. You've got your 30 minutes. And that will not only aid with your digestion, but it'll aid with your metabolic rate. And this is something I also saw visiting Italy is they almost always would walk after their meals. I mean, they love to walk over there. Hardly anybody drives a car. I mean, they walk everywhere. They're so healthy and they eat so well. They'll legit eat like a three-hour dinner. I mean, they just eat and eat and eat and eat. And I, I almost never saw any local people born and raised in Italia that were obese. I mean, I just didn't see it. And these are the same people that can live you know, one or two decades longer than the average American because they not only eat a great diet, but they move. They move, right? Regular exercise. So those three pillars are so, 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 so important. And, you know, I also wanted to touch on just a little bit of the historic um, background for this whole thing that we obsess about in our culture. And all the diets have some basis in the calorie, right? Like what the heck? Why do we put so much stinking emphasis on the calorie? Like why do we do it? It's interesting because it's sort of like this love-hate thing. I mean, for over a hundred years we've been obsessing about the calorie. It's put on this pedestal, like this is the holy grail of dieting. You gotta have X number of calories. You know, every food label we look at has the stinking calories on there you know like what the heck like where where does this come from why do we even use the calorie because originally the calorie was nothing to do with nutritional science absolutely nothing and this this i learned actually in my physics and chemistry class the calorie was designed as basically a unit of energy it's a unit of heat really and the original definition is basically the amount of heat needed to raise a gram of water, one degree Celsius. That was described way back in 1800s, you know, early 1800s, 1819, I think, uh, Nicholas Clement was uh, given that sort of, um, he, he did, did this uh, a definition or he was one of the first to kind of describe what a calorie was. And then the German physician in 1848, Julius Mayer kind of talked a little bit more about it. And then even the guy um, at water and, and uh, later, I think uh, one of the physicians many of us may have heard from turn of the century um, wrote a book called Diet and Health with the key to the calorie in 1918. This was none other than the famous Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters. And <laughs> she may have been the original diet book you know that, that literally sold a couple million copies. I mean, she was like the original diet book and it it was back in 1918 I believe which is just crazy because she not only talked about the calorie and counting calories and relating you know calories and food and blah 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 but unfortunately I think she started this bad relationship 
um, well, probably not started, but really potentiated this sort of unhealthy relationship with food and that if you were you know, unable to control your desires and you were unhealthy weight or whatever it was that you, all of a sudden this became a moral problem. And, you know, is this this huge issue way back when in the early 1900s? And unfortunately, it still persists today, this obsession on this silly thing called the calorie, right? This obsession. And it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, the calorie, if we think about it, is a unit of measure. It was never designed to have anything to do with nutritional science. Like it literally meant the amount of energy, the amount of energy, once again, needed to raise the temperature of one gram of water, one degree Celsius. This is little c calorie, okay? And nowadays in our nutritional labels, we actually don't use this little c calorie Use a big C calorie, which is a thousand times greater than the little C. It's literally a kilocalorie, right? And that's a kilogram, the amount of energy to raise one kilogram of water, one degree Celsius. And that's what we use in nutritional science for whatever reason, probably because we don't want to look at that label and have it say, oh my gosh, you've just consumed 300,000 calories or whatever it is. You know, it's funny, I... I, I bought some um, mac and cheese just to just to confirm to myself that uh, they no longer use, you know, those artificial dyes, the yellow five, the yellow six that they used to because several years ago in foreign, you know, countries outside of the U.S. and Europe and other countries, they actually quit using those artificial dyes, but they were still using them in the U.S. And so I wanted to make sure that they no longer use them because I'll be honest, you know, occasionally my kids eat mac and cheese and I'm I'm grateful that they finally took out those artificial colorings and they just use things like paprika and uh, a couple other things that are natural for the coloring, right? It's, it's no longer <laughs> colored with artificial uh, food colorings, the yellow five, yellow six, thank goodness. But I was looking at a label and it said that that one uh, serving was like 30, I think 300, 360 calories, if I'm not mistaken. I just had looked at it yesterday and, and so that's actually the kilocalorie. So legit in the in the traditional system, that would be that one serving of mac and cheese would be three hundred and sixty thousand calories. The little c calories, one the amount of heat required to raise one gram of water, one degree Celsius. That legit would be three hundred and sixty thousand <laughs> calories. So that's why in the U.S. we use this unit called the kilocalorie, which is the capital C or the big C uh, on the food labels, because we'd be freaking out, right? If we if we knew that, say, a bowl of ice cream was 600,000 uh, calories, I mean, we'd be totally freaking out. You know, in other countries, they often will use joules because that's kind of the international unit for energy is the joule. That's the metric system unit. That's what I studied and learned in chemistry and physics, for example. And if you're uh, scientific... Uh, uh, buff and you like these nerdy, you know, numbers and things. Uh, if you want to know it, one calorie. Now that's the small calorie. The small c is defined as exactly four point one eight four joules, or the kilocalorie is four thousand one hundred and eighty four joules. Right. So that's that's a lot, man. And and a lot of other countries actually will use you know these labels 
with the jewels or kilo jewels. And how this all came to be was way back when to even develop a label and put how many calories they use this old technique. It was called the bomb calorimeter. And it's super interesting. Basically, they would combust or burn the food. They would literally burn it in one um, you know, glass flask that was placed within a second glass chamber, which had water in it. And the heat that was given off by the combustion, like the legit burning of the food, would raise that water a certain number of degrees Celsius. And then they would be able to say how many calories um, that food source had within it. Like they literally burned the food and the heat that was given off. That's how they determined how many calories was in the food. Like number one, like how does this even make sense? Like in our bodies, are we like lighting a flame or a chemical, you know, torch, if you will? Are we literally putting our food and torching it and watching it ignite and burn? And then does that give us energy in our body? Like no way. Like how is this even physiologic? Well, this was how originally they decided how much or how many, I should say, calories were in a certain type of food. Like this legit was how they determined this by burning or combusting food in these bomb calorimeters. And this isn't really used today, but but uh, the process of this gave us some kind of, you know, general rule values, if you will. Many of us have heard these, right? Like, for example, we say that, you know, a carbohydrate has approximately, you know, um, four kilocalories per gram, right? Or four calories, the big C calories per gram, as well as a protein will burn four calories or big C calories per gram, as opposed to fat would be nine kilocalories or the big C calories per gram. And so we kind of use these arbitrary numbers now to calculate the calories in food, but it was all originally based upon this bomb calorimeter method, which legit burned or combusted the food. So not only do we have this like obsession with the calorie and this kind of love hate relationship, you know, the calorie counting, if you will, in all the major diets, but how accurate is this really? Like the fact that we use this combustion to, to actually determine it in the beginning, like the basic roots of it, like this doesn't even really make a lot of sense. So the the underlying notion that a certain amount of carbs or fat or protein contains this many calories is probably not that exact. And there's so many other factors too that go into this that I don't even have time to mention. But, you know, let's just say you take a sweet potato, for example, or or another fruit or vegetable that has carbohydrates, but many of these can be in the form of undigestible fiber, which is a carbohydrate, but we in our bodies just can't digest it. So so now they're kind of taking that into consideration more into the food labels and they're trying, they're trying to be able to make them more, more accurate. But I'll just be honest with you. You know, I've never counted calories and I don't miss it at all because it's confusing, it's not super accurate, and this whole notion that I learned when I was in school, the calorie in equals calorie out, like it just doesn't add up, it's not that simple. Another fascinating study, which um, I'll try to include in the show notes, I 
I had it pulled up and then I flip flopped over. But, but basically the, the gist of it was they took, you know, um, two groups of people, one that ate the so-called, you know, healthy diet and the other, they ate the processed diet. They basically fed them the same amount of calories, but the one group, the calories came from processed foods. For example, you know, part of the thing was like cheese, right? One of them had like Velveeta processed cheese. The other one had, you know, a more natural, wholesome, you know, pure cheese, if you will, that was not uh, processed in any way. And, and they compared the two. And although they had the same amount of um, calories in the meal, you know, the one person had the super highly processed meal. I think it was some type of a sandwich and they had, you know, the processed bread, the processed cheese food, whatever. The other person had the, you know, healthiest bread possible, you know, the starter uh, derived sourdough bread with only natural ingredients and it had a pure piece of cheese on there that didn't have any processed uh, things in it or chemicals and they had the same amount of calories and guess what? They didn't... (laughs) it didn't work the same. The people who had the pure or the more healthy, I should just say the more healthy food that wasn't processed, you know, didn't gain as much weight. They, their metabolism worked much better. I mean, it, it actually matters, I guess, at the end of the day, what I'm, the point I'm making is that it's not just the numeric calorie number. It's what makes that up. What is the food that we're talking about? Is it a highly processed uh, food or is it a whole natural real food? That's not processed. It actually makes a big difference. You can't just count the calories. And so I don't count calories really ever, to be honest. I read labels mostly to see what's in there so I'm aware of what's in my food. But I almost never look at the calories there because it's just, it doesn't, it's not so simple. It's not so simple. And, you know, in our bodies, there's so much else going on. It takes energy to digest our food everywhere from our chewing to the stomach acid to you know, our intestines working to break things down as well, reabsorb them. I mean, it's just, there's so much that goes into it that you just can't simply rely upon a label and what the number of calories are. It's just, it's just not that simple in the body. And it's based on, you know, some pretty questionable science with this whole notion of the bomb calorimeter that I talked about. So it's don't obsess. My point is don't obsess about the numbers of calories in any given type of food. Instead, pay more attention to the makeup of that food. What's in it? Do you recognize the ingredients, right? You've heard me say this many times before. I go back to kind of this arbitrary rule, the five-ingredient rule. I just like to call it the five-ingredient rule. If there's something I'm purchasing has more than five ingredients, I better look long and hard and make sure I really want to eat that. Do I recognize all those ingredients? Are they things that I want to put in my body? You know, are there a bunch of chemicals in there? Are there a bunch of seed oils in there? Like what's in there? I want to know. Where does it come from? You know, what's the source? Is it organic? Is it pasture raised? Is it grass fed and finished? If we're talking about meat, for example, like all these things, in my humble opinion, (laughs) matter more than the amount of calories that's in there. And that's my humble opinion, but I've seen it to work and I've seen it to work in many people. I've gotten many, many thank yous over the years where I've basically shared and encouraged people to eat real, wholesome, healthy, whole food. Like stop the process crap. Like just stop it. Stop the process crap. Eat real food. 
and you'll be so much better off. Not only will you not really have to watch the calories, but your metabolism will work better, more efficiently, and much cleaner. Like I mentioned in that example of the process versus the whole food. Like it actually works that way. It works out that way. And we don't want to, you know, do our bodies a disservice by just being a calorie in, calorie out person and not even caring what those calories are made up of because our bodies are made to work more efficiently, better, give us more energy with real, whole, natural food, especially those that comes from natural plants and animals that our body recognizes. And and I'm not going to purport that we all choose a certain diet, you know, vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, paleo, whatever it is, I'm going to say choose whatever works for you, but choose real, whole, natural, hopefully organic, healthy foods, like just real stuff, okay? All right, enough about that. <laughs> Sorry to perseverate, but at the end of the day, it really matters. <laughs> the type of food matters so, 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 so much, much, much more and the number of calories on that silly label. Like, I hate those stinking labels. They're so annoying because I think they give people complexes. Like, they've created lots of uh, eating disorders, really, where people are just obsessed about the silly label. Like, don't obsess about it. Do you think the folks in Sardinia, Italy, obsess about what's on a label? Heck, they probably don't even eat anything that has a label on it. They're eating wholesome actual, real, natural foods, both plant and animal, right? They eat cheeses and milk and meats and fish and fruits and vegetables. They even eat bread. Like, remember last time I shared the Sardinians eat bread literally every lunch, every day, but it's real bread that they make. It's not from a package. Like, they use a starter that's maybe been in their family for a couple hundred years. Like, how cool is that? And they just make it with natural ingredients. It's not bad. Bread is not the enemy. But most breads out there that are highly processed are. So it just it's what's making up the stuff you put in your mouth. It's not just, is it a carb? Is it a fat? Is it a protein? It's like, where is that coming from? Is it a real source? Is it a natural source? Because if so, your body's going to recognize it. It's going to utilize it much better. You're going to work more efficiently. You know, it's it's really so, so, so simple. And it does not have to be difficult. And one other thing just to round us out as I close is not only does it matter the foods that we put into our bodies, but it's the overall health of our microbiome. And I did two podcasts on the microbiome really early on because not only is that important to things like our mood and our immune function, our microbiome actually is super important in our digestive processes. Like it actually, you know, these trillions of bacteria largely within our gut contribute so much to the way that we absorb foods. And the healthier our microbiome is, the more diverse it is, the better we'll metabolize our foods. And this has been shown. Like I, I mentioned this in my podcast earlier. You know, if you took a overweight person and a thin person um, and you compared their gut flora, they'd be totally different, totally different. And so paying attention to our microbiome is super, super important as well. And I'll just kind of 
refer you back to those couple of podcasts that I did early on about the microbiome because I talk all about how to you know be able to not only have a healthy group of you know good bacteria but to have a diverse group of bacteria and it's by eating both plant and animal foods especially can help with this but primarily it's natural foods it's just real foods plant and animal can help with the divide, uh, the biodiversity of our microbiome, which at the end of the day will help us metabolize our food better and efficiently and to not get fat. I mean, it's just like amazing how much we can benefit from a healthy microbiome. So please go back to those couple of podcasts and, and take a look at those concepts of the healthy microbiome because really at the end of the day, it's not difficult. It's not challenging. We can all do this. It's something that is possible and it is possible to maintain a healthy weight for life. You don't have to be condemned to a perpetual yo-yo dieting program where you lose weight, you gain weight, you lose weight, you gain weight. That doesn't have to be you. Like rewrite your story. You can do this. You can do this. And it's very simple. It's not challenging. It's not difficult. But it does involve paying attention to what we put into our body. And primarily, it's healthy, whole, natural, real food. I can't, I can't belabor that enough, right, guys? Let's just do this. I just want you guys to know that it is possible to maintain lifelong health, not through yo-yo dieting, not through a certain type of diet, whatever that may be. It's, it's what works for you food that you like, that is real, that is wholesome, that is natural, not the food that you like that's processed because we do have to, <laughs> we do have to limit ourselves with those processed food. I'll be honest, like that's something you're going to have to limit. You're going to have to limit that. You're going to have to limit your snacking. I've talked about that before. Try to narrow your window, do something akin to a intermittent fasting where you have a rest period where your body is not being fed things that are going to raise its insulin levels because it matters. It matters, but it's very simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Go back to my intermittent fasting talk. It's simple, simple, simple. So real, wholesome, natural foods. Make sure you're drinking enough water. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. Like you guys can do this. And then you got to get out and move like the six for six that my wife talks about. You got to get out there six days out of the week. You got to move your body and it'll happen for you. And you will be able to have lifelong health, a healthy weight, not just for a month or two or three or six or maybe a year if you're lucky, but for life. You can do this. It is possible. It is possible. It can be done and you can do it. Aloha and mahalo until next time.